This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. From The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense, political talk without the boring parts. I'm John Wiener. Today we'll talk with the wonderful Anna DeVere Smith about how young people of color who live in poverty get pushed out of the classroom and into prison. Her one-woman show about the school-to-prison pipeline is called Notes from the Field. It's running now on HBO. Also, it's time for another segment of Ivanka Talk with Amy Willens. Today we'll ask the question, should Ivanka be indicted? First up today, the 7,383-seat strategy. That's the number of seats in state legislatures in the United States, and 6,066 of them will be on the ballot this November. Democrats are now gearing up to contest a whole lot of those seats, something they have not done for years. For comment, we turn to Joan Walsh. Of course, she's the nation's national affairs correspondent and a CNN political analyst. She's also the author of What's the Matter with White People? Finding Our Way in the Next America. We reached her today in New York City. Joan, welcome back. Thanks, John. Happy to be with you. Well, the story of the Democrats' hopes for the elections this November starts last November in Virginia. You covered the Virginia races. Tell us about them. Virginia is one of two states, New Jersey's the other one, that has off-off-year elections. So in the year uh, 2017, as people were despairing but also fired up about Trump, there weren't a lot of places to really indulge your electoral energy. Uh, and so what we saw in Virginia, to some extent in Jersey, but Jersey's been a bluer, despite Chris Christie, uh, Jersey had more of a chance to be a blue state again. Folks did a lot of good work there, but Virginia really became the epicenter of the resistance. You had a lot of women come home from the Women's March uh, last January and decide to run for office. What we saw was women defying the age-old Emily's List maxim that women need to be asked at least three times before they run. I mean, that's always been true. It's not like Emily's List made that up. But we saw uh, last year in Virginia that we had an unprecedented number of first-time candidates decide to run for the House of Delegates. So they doubled the number of Republicans that got challenged. The, the problem, uh, going back beyond Virginia, John, is that Democrats have just kind of given up on a lot of these state house races as 
as Republicans discovered them back in, say, 2008. Uh, and so you've had this horrible situation where more than half of the incumbents in Virginia, Republican incumbents in Virginia had no challenger in 2015. Well, that all changed last year. And Democrats wound up picking up 15 seats. They almost won the majority of the House of Delegates. And 11 of those 15 victorious seats were won by women. So you have a lot of red, blue, purple states vying this year to be the next Virginia, the place where Democrats can really make some inroads into taking back state houses. And after Virginia, Democrats in other states flipped Republican seats in special elections for state legislatures. Remind us how things have gone in some of those other special elections. Well, right. There have been 20 special elections since Trump was elected. 20 Democratic wins. I think Republicans have won won four. 20 places where Democrats took a seat away from a Republican. And some of those are places, some of those are in red states, Wisconsin, Florida, Kentucky, Missouri. They're in districts that Trump won by anywhere from 5 to 15 points. And so that, as well as Virginia, is giving Democrats a new kind of confidence that they can make inroads and take and take back some of these state houses. You call this phenomenon of women running for office for the first time the Trump effect. In your new piece for The Nation, you quote Carolyn Fidler, a very eloquent expert on state politics, on the logic behind women deciding to run for the first time. Shall we quote that line? Are we allowed to in a family podcast? <laughs> I think we can give it a try. Okay. Uh, yes, Carolyn, Carolyn Fidler. Many people have described the Trump effect galvanizing women, but Carolyn Fidler put it, put it best. Basically, if that fucking schlub can be president, I can run for office. <laughs> and, and that has turned out to, to be true and fantastic. Uh, but now people are talking about the Virginia effect, where if Democrats can pick up 15 seats in one day in a, in a purple state, our state should be able to pick up two or four or, 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 or even 15 and, and really contest the state houses again. So this is a happy subject, but now I have to ask an unhappy question. You said a few minutes ago that the Democrats had given up on many of these state legislatures. How did the Democrats get into this situation? How did they lose so much ground to Republicans in so many places? It's so depressing. We, we need to acknowledge it. They've lost, people say 1,000, it's actually 968 state legislative seats since 2009, since Obama was elected. And when I say since Obama was elected, there is a very clear correlation between these things. When Obama took over, remember, Obama was elected and Democrats also held the House of Representatives and the Senate. So Democrats were in the position that are now in the position that Republicans found themselves in in 2009. And what they did, they were already starting to investigate this strategy, but what they did was focus on state house races. They were also uh, behind in terms of control of state houses. And they realized that's where the power of redistricting lies. 37 states give uh, virtually full control of redistricting, drawing the House of Representatives, uh, boundaries as well as the state legislative boundaries to the legislature. So it's an enormous uh, place of power. And the Republicans put many tens of millions, I mean, at this point, I'm sure it's over 100 million, 
into these races, and they they cleaned the Democrats' clocks. The Democrats weren't even paying attention. In 2010, everybody realized, you know, everybody remembers that oh, it was bad. The Democrats lost the House, but it was much worse at the state house level. So since Obama was elected, the Republicans now control total control of legislatures in 32 states, uh, and 25 of those also have a Republican governor. The Republicans were telegraphing there. This was not a secret. They, they do some secret stuff, we know. But Karl Rove was writing about this in the Wall Street Journal, that, that there was all this money going in, and this is why they were doing it, and this is where they were focused. And the Democrats really sat on their hands. So is it Obama's fault? Some of our friends on the left blame Obama for neglecting the states and holding back support from his own campaign organization for down ticket candidates. Is there any truth to that? I think there's a little truth to that. Yeah. I mean, I don't think it's, enti- it's certainly not entirely his fault, but, but right. Obama for America and then organizing for America was much more tied to the president's fortunes, much more concerned about getting him elected, reelected in, in 2012 and really didn't pay much attention to the, the, Democratic National Committee. I mean, people think that the problems with the DNC started in the Bernie Hillary primary, but they started long before that. Uh, and there were lots of lots of complaints and lots of concern that money wasn't being raised, and if it was raised, it wasn't being spent the right way. And the president basically didn't didn't do anything about that. So you know, you have these two these two situations going on at the same time. The Republicans figure it out. They go to the Koch brothers. They go to deck down in uh, North Carolina, which was really kind of ground zero for all of this. They go to a guy named Art Pope, who gives them tens of millions of dollars to experiment, and they take over the North Carolina legislature. And they turn the other thing that happens. It's not just redistricting. It's that they turn these states into laboratories of reaction, where you see them not just control redistricting, but pass new voter suppression laws. They pass new restrictions on abortion rights. They slash taxes. They cut education. They pass new, uh, you know, anti-labor laws. They they pass right-to-work laws, which we've shown. We had a great piece in The Nation a couple months ago showing that the passage of right-to-work laws is correlated with Democrats losing several seats in the state legislature, that it really depresses Democratic turnout because it it, it hurts unions, public and private, especially public employee unions. So it has this cascading effect, and people are only just catching up to it. We've been talking here about Democrats renewed energy to contest seats in state legislatures, of course, we're especially interested in the Democrats' chances of retaking the House and maybe the Senate in November. There's a lot of energy for that, but there are a lot of obstacles to that, especially with some of our vulnerable Senate candidates. Let's talk about the congressional picture for a minute. Well, I think the Democrats need, what, 24 24 seats to, to take back the House. Uh, and there are roughly 23 or 24 districts that Hillary Clinton carried. Yes. And people are talking about the potential for a wave election. It's it's very possible they'll take back. No, no one should sleep on this, but it's possible they they'll take back the House. The Senate the Senate is tougher because of just the map this year. Uh, there are at least five state five red state Democrats up for re-election who are going to have very tough very tough races. But part of what people what, what excites people about the state these state legislative campaigns though is that it's thought in Virginia that the 
the existence of these state candidates uh, on the ballot in places where Democrats haven't played for maybe six or eight or 10 years, that boosts turnout uh, for the yes. statewide candidates as well as for the, you know, the, the congressional candidates. You suddenly have Democrats in red counties putting up the flag, having meetings, registering voters. Uh, and so all of this can contribute to taking back the House and, and potentially the Senate. And, and frankly, I, I, you know, I don't, I don't know that I've proven uh, cause and effect in terms of Democrats losing the House and the Senate in first 2010 and then 2014 losing the Senate. But it, 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 you do see that the Democrats fared particularly poorly in the places where Republicans took back the state, the state assembly uh, or, and the state Senate and the governor's race. So they do seem to be tied together. Can you tell us anything about the politics of these new candidates running for all these seats in state legislatures? We're told the party is still divided between the Hillary supporters and the Bernie insurgents. Is that an issue in these primaries and that are I am up? I am definitely not seeing that on the ground. I didn't see it in Virginia. You know, I I, prof- I really paid mainly paid attention to the women in Virginia, but I profiled a lot of several of the women candidates were Bernie uh, even Bernie delegates who quickly, you know, switched to Hillary, worked their hearts out for Hillary and and pulled together elements of both the Sanders and the Clinton local campaigns behind them. Democratic Socialist of America candidate Lee Carter, a Bernie supporter. He got support from Clinton organizations in his district. He was elected to the House of Delegates uh, as an open socialist. And, and in the races that I'm looking at across the country, I haven't had much time to travel yet, but what I'm hearing from folks is that the, the, the resistance organizations on the ground are, are very much a mixture of, of, of both uh, camps. You just aren't seeing it. You know, uh, there's a, a, a new group called Run for Something that's encouraging millennials to uh, run for office. It was started by someone who worked for Clinton, uh, but it's backing Sanders delegates for office. So it's funny. I mean, it, we, we, we see that sometimes in the pages of the nation or, you know, in, in sort of more uh, rarefied political circles. But on the ground in these states, it's, uh, it's not coming up, which is a really wonderful thing to see. Joan Walsh, she wrote about the Democrats' 7,383-seat strategy for the brand-new issue of The Nation. You can read it at thenation.com. Thanks, Joan. Always great to have you on the show. Thanks, John. Glad to be with you. Now it's time for Ivanka Talk on Start Making Sense. Today we ask the question, should the president's daughter be indicted? For that, we turn to our chief Ivanka correspondent, Amy Willens. Of course, she's a longtime contributing editor at The Nation, former Jerusalem correspondent for The New Yorker, and best known for her work on Haiti, most recently the award-winning book Farewell, Fred Voodoo. Amy, welcome back. Thank you, John. Well, Ivanka is connected either directly or tangentially to events at the heart of the Russiagate probe. Let's look at the arguments that she should be a target for the prosecutors. Where do you think is the strongest case that she may have committed a crime? Well, possibly it's the cover-up meeting on Air Force One after the fabled meeting in Trump Tower with the Russian lawyer. 
where on Air Force One, the Trump team, including the president and Jared Kushner uh, and Ivanka, crafted a message to the media saying that it was a meeting largely about Russian adoptions and had nothing to do with Hillary Clinton when actually, as we have discovered, it was all about dishing dirt on the Clinton campaign. And uh, Ivanka was present at that meeting. She did tell Michael Wolff, the author of Fire and Fury, that she was there briefly and took a pill to go to sleep. (laughs) Which strikes me as too much honesty, you know? When do you find a person admitting that they took a pill to go to sleep in high office other than when they want to make an excuse for themselves to not have been present at a damning meeting, which is part of the cover-up that Mueller is studying? And then there was another meeting where she did not take a pill to go to sleep. That was the one where they discussed firing... FBI Director James Comey. Yes, and she was very supportive of that idea. She was very worried, as was her husband, about Comey's taking a look at various Kushner companies projects um, as that investigation wore on. And they were just all very frightened at the very beginning of this. And she wanted to get rid of him. That seems very much like being part of a conspiracy to obstruct justice if we believe that Comey was fired to stop him from investigating the president's crimes. Right, rather than being fired because he was too tough on Hillary and her emails, as Trump alleged, after his firing. Now, I guess we should say here, you know, uh, I'm not a lawyer. I just play one on the podcast. And there's a lot we don't know, but presumably Robert Mueller knows a lot that you and I do not know about right. all this. The fact that Ivanka has not yet been hauled up on charges doesn't mean she's not being closely studied. And I would not assume anything about Mueller's attention or lack of attention to the possible subjects at hand. The Intercept had a piece on whether Ivanka could be indicted by Hannah Seligson. She points to uh, Ivanka's connections to Felix Sater. Who is he again? Felix Sater is a Russian-American businessman uh, with reputed mob ties uh, who loudly and plausibly boasted of connections with senior Russian officials in Moscow. He is now considered to be one of the Trump Organization's biggest headaches in the Russia probe because of a letter that he wrote to Trump lawyer Michael Cohn in 2015. Here is what he said in that letter. Our boy can become president of the USA and we can engineer it. I will get all of Putin's team to buy in on this. I will manage this process. Sounds sort of like collusion. Sounds just a touch like collusion there. And what does this have to do with Ivanka? Well, Ivanka accompanied Sater at one point to Moscow in, I think it was 2006, and uh, he claimed that he arranged for Ivanka to sit in Putin's chair at the Kremlin, and when the New York Times heard this, it asked, Ivanka, did you sit in Putin's chair at the Kremlin? She says, I may have sat in Putin's (laughs) chair, but, quote, she did not recall it, unquote. I would remember if I sat in Putin's chair, John. <laughs> but but I don't think it's a crime to sit in Putin's no, chair. No, simply but... it shows that there is a relationship between Ivanka and Sater. 
the Moscow connection is at the heart of a lot of the whole Russia thing. You know, a lot of people think, we think, this all goes back to Trump's project of building a Trump hotel in Moscow, which he's been trying to do for many years, which accelerated a lot just in the last two years and which was still going on during the campaign. A lot of people think this is the basis of Trump's, what should we call it, romance with Putin, a lot of which has been covered up and denied. And Ivanka is an important part of the project of building a Trump hotel in Moscow. So you know that Ivanka was one of the um, few members of the Trump organization who was tasked with going to foreign countries and figuring out sites, dealing with foreign governments on behalf of the Trump organization, real estate projects, and especially in the hotel and apartment tower business. And she went also to Moscow uh, on behalf of the Trump organization, scouting for sites to build the Trump Tower Moscow, and they did find some sites, and this was to be done with uh, a Moscow bank that is closely tied to the Russian government. But because of the Obama sanctions against Russia, the deal couldn't go through. And it is thought that that is possibly part of why the sanctions became such a big conversation piece between the Russians who met with the Trump campaign in the walk-up to the election. And another potential vulnerability of Ivanka is her support of campaign chief Paul Manafort, who's now charged with conspiracy, money laundering, being an unregistered agent of a foreign entity and making false statements to the FBI. This is being pretty close to a person charged with multiple felonies. This one I'm a little—I think it's— highly speculative. She supported Manafort. He was uh, someone they knew. He was someone who was considered an expert. Yes, now he's being charged, but you know that doesn't mean she should be charged because she supported his role in the campaign. She also supported Michael Flynn's role in the campaign. He's now cooperating with the Russia probe. So I don't know if you can just tar her with the same brush. It's a little suspicious. We wonder what Mueller's looking at about her. And we wonder what Flynn might say. If Flynn says, well, everything I did was what Ivanka told me to do. Right, or what we discussed. So we've been talking about what Mueller might be investigating that could lead to criminal charges against Ivanka. Of course, there's a lot of reasons to think Ivanka is not guilty of anything. Let's look at some of those. What do you think are, you know, what do you think is the best reason that Ivanka is not uh, guilty of any crimes? This is her defense. She's not smart enough. She's a mommy. She's too busy with the kids. She only cares about women's issues, as if she were the first lady. That's how the defense of Ivanka goes. She's she's like a first lady. She has the kids. She has her women's projects, and she's just not involved. But if if that were the case, it would be completely other than how Ivanka has always represented herself in her books Uh, as a fully viable member of the Trump organization, in fact, sometimes solely in charge of various projects. And I just don't buy the stupid Ivanka uh, theory at all. She may not be the world's greatest intellectual, but she is a woman who knows how to do business. So maybe it was stupid to recommend Manafort and Flynn for jobs, but it wasn't a crime. Uh, Maybe she's just inexperienced and has poor judgment about 
public life, since really all she knows about is the Trump Organization, and the rules that the Trump Organization follows are a little different from the rules that the White House should follow. But that doesn't work as, as a justification. First of all, ignorance is not a defense. And second of all, um, and when you look at Jared and Ivanka and how they've run themselves in the West Wing, especially Jared, but they're part of a team, these are people who came to the White House without the slightest notion of propriety and impropriety, without the slightest notion of observing a lack of violation of both the spirit and the letter of the law. That's not how they operate. They brought their business uh, behaviors into the White House, Jared doing business deals in his little office next to the bigger office down the hallway. And um, they went to the White House with this in mind. I think you're headed for a bigger point here about Jared and Ivanka. Well, it's something I've thought about a lot because I've studied the development of kleptocracies in other countries in the world, and this is how it works. People come in, they look like a little bit shady, and they seem a little bit different from the leaders who have preceded them. And then suddenly you realize they're using the office to do their own business. They're stealing from the American people. I mean, if you think it's not a... uh, a violation of propriety for Jared to go on taxpayers' dollar all over the world, um, ostensibly pursuing our foreign policy, but in fact also pursuing his own uh, business goals, that's not true. And he is using uh, the the White House to establish ties, say, to Mohammed bin Salman um, in Saudi Arabia, to establish these ties for future use for his businesses so that when he does leave office, he will have uh, made connections to other kleptocrats across the world um, with whom he can do business. And this is a danger to the United States and to the Constitution. We used to say that Ivanka and Jared were moderating forces. Yeah. We wanted them in the Trump White House because they were social liberals. They were New Yorkers. And they indeed, were... they are social liberals. But so what? I don't want my social liberals uh, doing their business and sucking monies out of foreign uh, leaders in order to pursue their own ridiculous $1.8 billion mortgages downtown in Manhattan. It's just... it's. It's a grotesque abuse of power. You know, so what if they think it's bad for Trump to uh, pursue gays or to support Nazis in the southern states of the United States or to kowtow to the NRA? I don't care what they feel. They're not doing any good in the first place. Are they stopping Trump from pursuing those goals? No, they're not. And nor do they think they will be. They just are are showing a nice face while they... Uh, while they suck money from the job. And Ivanka may be the mom of the Instagrammable Arabella, the cutest girl who's ever lived in the history of mankind, but she's also a shark, not Arabella, Ivanka. It's a grotesque abuse of power. This has been Ivanka Talk with Amy Willens, our chief Ivanka correspondent. Amy, thanks for coming in today. Thank you, John.
Next up, the school-to-prison pipeline. That's the subject of Anna DeVere Smith's one-woman show that's running on HBO now. It's called Notes from the Field, and it dramatizes the real-life accounts of students, parents, teachers, and school administrators caught up in a system where young people of color who live in poverty get pushed out of the classroom and into prison. Anna DeVere Smith, of course, is probably best known to TV audiences as Nancy McNally on The West Wing and Gloria Acolytus on Nurse Jackie. She teaches at NYU. She's an official MacArthur genius. She calls this the Pipeline Project. I spoke with her about it in 2016. The Pipeline Project is about how poverty uh, really manifests in black, brown, and Native American communities in such a way that the likelihood that a kid is going to end up in the juvenile justice system and then in prison is is very, very high. And I think you know that there are a lot of people in America who are concerned at the incarceration rates in our country, and it's one of the few places, my understanding, that that uh, Democrats and Republicans even agree that we have to do something about the number of people who are being locked up. And kids are a part of that. Some people call this the school-to-prison pipeline, and the Justice Department has statistics that prove that poor kids of color are more likely to be suspended or expelled from school for things that you know, sometimes aren't very clear. It's something called willful defiance. Um, you know, if you sort of look at the teacher the wrong way, that's an example. And people are doing a lot of work to try to turn that back to figure out, you know, how to keep kids in school. Myself, even as I got into this project under the umbrella of the school, the prison pipeline, I feel it's a little bit dangerous to blame schools and teachers for something that is really rooted in, in, in poverty in the way that people live without opportunity. And just to remind our listeners who may not be familiar with your performances, you take a social and political issue, you interview 100 people or more who come from a broad spectrum of perspectives, then you take about, what, two dozen of the characters yourself and recreate them, their speech, their gestures. It's, it's amazing It's an amazing uh, thing. We saw you a couple of months ago here in L.A. on the Broad Stage in Santa Monica. More recently, you performed in in Baltimore. I imagine doing this in Baltimore after Freddie Gray is different from doing it in Santa Monica. Oh, yeah. I mean, I I, uh, ended up doing my research in Baltimore by a series of uh, sort of unexpected events, I ended up uh, postponing what was going to be a research period in March of last year, and I had moved it to May, only to arrive in Baltimore right after the riot or the unrest or the events, whatever you want to call it. And so certainly when I went there in December to perform um, for Baltimore, I mean, you know, it's a city that is... uh, really, uh, you know, they don't know what they're sitting on. It's always exciting, I have to say, to be performing in an environment where the issues are very alive and relevant. We have some some clips we're, we're going to listen to, starting with a young woman from Baltimore that you spoke with and then recreated on stage named India Sledge. Say a few words about India Sledge. Who is she and how did you find her? Yeah, so I met India um, in a program that is, you know, sort of like a GED program, you know, sort of finishing your high school education. She actually 
left either middle school or the beginning of high school because she was pregnant. And she's now had two children and is uh, still quite young and has gone back to try to get her high school diploma. And so that's why I met her. And, you know, I think I and we were all very charmed by her. And that's why why she ended up in the show. But it's also because I think that she gives a very good sort of sociological um, evaluation of the environment that she lives in. So here from the Pipeline Project Baltimore chapter, the section called The Death of Freddie Gray, very briefly, Anna DeVere Smith doing India Sledge. My boyfriend Jake was Leary. Walker, he was walking to the store, and the police jacked him and up and threw him against the wall for no reason. Checked him for no reason. And since that time, his mom was like, I've got to get away from here. Because you know, around this area, that's all it is. Around here, it's just drug dealers, drug dealers, drug dealers. Uh, for your project on the school-to-prison pipeline, you talked to all kinds of people all, all over the place. You said you did some work in Northern California. You talked to a really interesting guy named Michael Tubbs in Stockton. Who is Michael Tubbs? How did you find him? Well, Michael Tubbs is a star. He is well-known in, in California. He's the youngest councilman, I believe, that Stockton has ever had. And right now he's running for mayor. Uh, uh, extraordinary young man, graduated from Stanford and, you know, started campaigning then when he was still in school. And what interested me so much about Michael and other uh, friends of his that I met in Stockton is here's a bankrupt city, you know, um, homicide-ridden city. And I met young people like Michael who have great educations who are coming back home to try to make a difference. And so I found it to be pretty irresistible. And like India, he too, in just talking about his city, gives us something that I think sociologists would be interested in. So here's Anna DeVere Smith as Michael Tubbs, a city councilman in Stockton, talking about reading aloud in a classroom. And I was reading about Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., and I got to the point he's assassinated. I tried to go through the page really quickly because I really didn't want to talk to six-year-olds about death. So try to turn the page really quickly. And one little boy raised his hand, Mr. Tubbs, my uncle got shot. Then another little boy said, Mr. Tubbs, my cousin got shot. Before I could turn the page, every student in that classroom knew somebody had been shot as a victim of violent death. And then we have the conclusion of the Michael Tubbs segment. What life is this? When I can't see past 18, just want to be alive at 25. And it's just so heartbreaking. Prison or death. There's really no other option, opportunity for boys and young men of color and Stockton. Prison or death. Anna DeVere Smith, you recently described yourself as a daughter of the teachers of Baltimore. Uh, one of the people you portray in the Pipeline Project is a teacher from Philadelphia ma- named Stephanie Williams. Tell us about her. Stephanie is a young teacher who I met by accident when I was going into a school in North Philadelphia. And uh, I don't expect anybody to recognize me in North Philadelphia. And she stopped and she stared at me and pointed at me. And usually that's because somebody has seen me on Nurse Jackie or on um, on the West Wing. Uh, but actually she knew my play, one of my early plays, Fires in the Mirror. 
and um, and she's a she's what an ES teacher working with kids who have emotional problems, and you know in in the story that she tells us, you that's why I'm careful about just calling this a school to prison pipeline because you get a sense here of what teachers go through, and. I think we would, my, my, my idea would be to make schools that are habitable for everybody, not just, not just the kids, but the teachers and the counselors, the nurses, the janitors. We need to turn schools back into communities that are, are, are fulfilling for people and that, and that make people healthy. And you can hear, as you listen to Stephanie Williams, some of the kinds of stresses and pressures that there are on a young teacher who's doing everything she can to do her best as a young woman who graduated from Mount Holyoke. She could probably do other things, uh, but here she is, dedicated, and it, it's, it's hard. Let's listen. I felt like I had a whole bunch of hungry, starving people, and, and I had nothing in my hand to give them, even though I tried to give them so much. But it was hard to be that strong day in and day out. It was just, it felt like, it was like running a jail without a gun. That's what it was like. It was like being in jail without a gun. No gun, no handcuffs, no bully clubs. I can't throw you in the closet. I can't do any of that. I got to just keep you in order just by being me. I read in the Washington Post that you're experimenting with new forms for your stage performance to engage the audience directly and and inspire them to action. What what was it that you were doing in Baltimore? How do you think it worked? Yes, and also at Berkeley Repertory Theater this summer, I had an opportunity to experiment with this for a full month. And my idea is to basically just stop the show in the middle and what is normally called the second act to give that over to the audience. So what we do is take an audience of approximately 500 people, divide them up into groups of 20 and send them all over other parts of the theater, backstage, on stage, uh, in, you know, rehearsal rooms and uh, dressing rooms in Baltimore. It was even a, a paint shop. One group met in, another group met on a stairway. And to get the community talking about what they can do after they've seen the first act and asking people to make commitments. And, you know, because in my mind, the audience has got folks who can do much more than me. I'm on stage with a wonderful, I should mention, by the way, jazz musician, Marcus Shelby is a bass player. Yeah. And we, we can entertain, we can get an audience, we can move an audience, we get you to laugh, get you to cry. But my work is, is just a call. It's a call to action. And there are people in the audience who know a lot more about incarceration than I do, a lot more about education. There's younger people who are, you know, recently out of school or, or in schools. I haven't been in, you know, high school or middle school in many, many years. And also, you know, there's probably somebody in the audience who could write a bigger check than everybody put together. Let's get in here and turn this group of people who are sort of strangers sitting in the dark and try to do what we can to bring them together as a group of active citizens. And so that's what I've been experimenting with. had a lot of time to work on it in Berkeley and then take it to Baltimore. Wow. Well, one last thing about your stage work. Here on the radio, we do everything we can to eliminate the ums, the ers, and the you knows. I know you take the opposite approach on stage. You think you think they matter. Why? Well, because I think that we all learn language, uh, you know, and we learn it, uh, particularly if we learned it through not just talking but reading and writing, we learn to speak it in what we would consider to be perfectly. But the fact is that 
for everybody, speaking is a form of jazz. You, you, you've got the words, and then you make them into a composition. Every time you open your mouth, there's kind of a musical quality to your speaking, and that music has an effect on people more than the words themselves. And so part of that music and part of the rhythm, of course, is the ums, the you knows, the well, in Baltimore, it's really kids who are who are less than 25 use an expression, uh, you feel me, that then becomes Yefemi, which then becomes Fe, um, and <laughs> Femi. And, you know, somebody who's just like eight years older uh, would say, you know, in that same space where you would have uh, you feel me, Femi, or Fe, says, uh, you know what I'm saying. And that changes from, you know what I'm saying, to, you know, no I'm saying, to, saying. So all of these things have a rhythmic reality. And that's really what reaches your heart or makes you furious is the tones, the vocal tones that a person has in the song that they sing. And great speakers have uh, an incredible aptitude for that. You know, um, anybody you can think of who is a very compelling speaker isn't just saying words. They're, They're really singing to you. Anna DeVere Smith in 2016, her one-woman show on the school-to-prison pipeline is running now on HBO through the end of March. It's called Notes from the Field. Finally, a word about Dave Zirin's Edge of Sports podcast, where sports and politics collide, hosted by the sports editor of The Nation, and featuring Dave Zirin's interviews, his commentary, and his rants, So even if you're a sports fan who hates politics or a political junkie who hates sports, you'll find something to love in this podcast. It's posted every Tuesday now at thenation.com slash edge of sports. Start Making Sense, the Nation podcast, is co-produced by the L.A. Review of Books and recorded at the studios of Emerson College, Los Angeles, located in the heart of Hollywood with technical assistance from Justin Allen. Our show is recorded and edited by Lyra Smith. Alan Minsky is our senior producer. Frank Reynolds is our executive producer. Annie Shields is our engagement editor. Katrina Vanden is editor and publisher of The Nation. Our theme music is from Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. Find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com and subscribe to Start Making Sense wherever you get your podcasts at iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and now at Google Play. I'm John Wiener. Tune in to Start Making Sense next week for more political talk without the boring parts. This is the story of The One. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.